3, verses 3 through 11, and this is in the ESV Bible. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I, want you, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, or, yeah, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, having nothing more to do with him, Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let me pray. Father God, we come before you, desperate for you to be with us this morning. Uh, With with heavy hearts uh, and also with hope, we um, come to this passage uh, that just shows the, the beauty of the gospel, the grace, uh, as the foundation for our life with you and our life with each other. And as we look at just this hard topic of church division, Father, would your spirit come? Uh, would you uh, speak through me? Would you um, just unite us under our King Jesus and his word? We need you to do this, Father, because we're helpless to do this on our own. So please do it in his name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Josh. I'm the pastor here. It's great to be with you. We are finishing up our series on what it means to be the church. We spent five weeks in it. It's kind of become a little bit of a, a routine for us at the end of the summer, early fall, to just take some time and, and look at what it means to be the church. And we're kind of ending on a bummer. <laughs> we're kind of ending on, on somewhat of a difficult uh, topic. But I believe looking at what scripture says about the topic of church division uh, can also provide a lot of hope. If you've been around church any, uh, any amount, you know that there can be conflict in church, or maybe not you experience it directly, but you know of church splits or the classic cliche of you know, a small southern town with 500 people and like 50 churches you know, with 10 people each or whatever. Uh, why, why does that happen? Where, where does this come from? Uh, the, the, the conflict in the church. And as we, as we look at this, we just want to see what Scripture says. As, we, as we're trying to be what the Bible calls us to be as a church, how can we obey God's word? Where do, what do we do when there's conflict or disagreement in the church? What do we do when our member meetings aren't fun? Instead of being this cozy time of being the church family together, celebrating what God has done and what we hope he will do, we're all bracing ourselves for the complaints or the arguments. What do we do? Well, the good news is we don't have to figure it out. Scripture is pretty clear. We don't have to accept it as normal, like, yep, church is split. Yep, there's always conflict. Scripture's clear that division does happen, and it's clear about what we can do to fight for unity. And if you're visiting with us, welcome. Sorry that 
you have to be a part of what is really just a little bit of a, a family, uh, family matter uh, that we're seeking to address. If you're visiting with us as a Christian, I, I would imagine you've experienced at least a little bit of the ugliness that can happen uh, in the church, uh, which is sad, is the place where God's people, uh, as, as God's people. Uh, and we're seeking to address some of that ugliness. We're seeking to let God's word wash us like that passage we read in Ephesians said. Let God's word cleanse us with the washing of the water of the word uh, and, and create, create, us a, create in us a beautiful church family. And if you're with us and you're not a Christian, you're still trying to figure out where you stand with Jesus, we're really glad you're here. Uh, and I would imagine maybe if you don't have a lot of church experience, you've at least experienced a little bit of the breakdown between uh, people who say they're Christians and say they follow Jesus and then how it is lived out. And that's kind of what we're, we're trying to uh, uh, address and deal with. How can people who claim to be Christians just not seem to be anything like Jesus? And that's kind of what we're working on today. So it's not a super fun sermon, not a lot of cute analogies or stories. We're just going to look at the Bible and get through it uh, is kind of the, the posture that we have. Uh, we're going to look at a lot of different passages in Scripture to kind of paint a, a full picture of, of what it says about uh, Jesus' kingship and division. Uh, so we'll, I'll be moving around a lot, invite you to do that, but we'll just really be mainly looking at two passages. So when we get to those, I'll tell you to, to look those up. And if you want to keep up with all the flipping around, you can't. Don't feel any pressure. So let's dive in. The first point is Jesus came to bring unity and division. Jesus came to bring unity and division. This is one of just both, both of these things are just true in scripture, very, very plainly. We're going to look at them. First, he came to unite people in his kingdom. If you're uh, flipping around with us, look at John 10. John 10, 14 through 16. This is not one of those that you need to uh, look at, so you can just hear it read over you. This is Jesus, really sweet passage. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this pen, this sheep pen, and I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus came to unite his people, his flock. Uh, he calls his people sheep in this passage, which is, which is funny for another sermon. And he, he will be their shepherd. There's only one shepherd. There's only one leader ultimately, of the church. He is the chief shepherd that this church and all churches uh, who claim to be a, a Jesus church would, would follow. Flipping over a couple pages to John 17, then, this is uh, towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is called his, his high priestly prayer, is the fancy term. Uh, Jesus simply prays for his disciples, both the folks that were following him back then on the earth, and then it's beautiful because we see the words of our King and Savior praying for us, you and me, those who we call Jesus Lord in this room. Jesus is praying for us. And look what he prays regarding unity in verse 11. He says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, meaning his, his disciples. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. This is such a loaded passage that where he calls for the Father, God Almighty, to protect his disciples. What does he call them to protect them for? For unity, so that they might be one. And then how does he describe the unity that he intends for his disciples to experience? 
that, they, that we would be one as God the Father and Jesus his Son are one, which theologically is one person. They're completely united, same purpose, same identity. I think this is really significant because it shows that Jesus is acknowledging that unity's going to be an issue, and we're going to need help with it. And so he prays to God the Father that he would protect us from disunity, protect us by the power of his name so that we could be one. This is what he intends for the church. But he also tells us very clearly that he comes to bring division as well. And I don't think this is a paradox, but rather just a fleshing out of the same idea. If you are uh, following along, we're looking at Matthew 12. Matthew 12, starting in verse 22. Then they brought him, Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It's only Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that, his, that this fellow drives out demons. This is a really crazy passage. Because what happened is, a man under spiritual oppression, to the point where he was blind and mute, gets healed miraculously. And instead of praising God, all the church people say, I think he's the devil. This is the way that people respond to a miracle. If you ever wonder, oh man, if only I could see like a real miracle. If only Jesus would really show up and do a real miracle. We have lots of evidence that people witnessed real miracles and just totally dodged it. To the point of calling Jesus the devil, which is just a bad idea. You're really missing something if you're calling Jesus the devil. Look how <clears throat> Jesus responds in the next verse, verse 25. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Jesus is saying quite simply, if Satan is casting out Satan, if Satan is against himself, then that's not going to happen. How can a kingdom stand? If he's, I drive out demons by that power, what, what is even happening here? And he moves on to talk about his kingdom in verse 30, skipping a few verses down. He says very plainly, Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. There is a line in the sand, and it's Jesus. Gathering with Jesus or scattering without Jesus. There will be Jesus people, and there will be not Jesus people those are the categories that Jesus shows us in Scripture. And he goes on to describe kind of maybe the main emphasis, or at least one of the main emphasis, of what Jesus' people look like. If you flip over a page to Matthew 10, he makes the dividing line even more clear. Matthew 10, verse 34. Jesus says, do not suppose that I have come to bring, pre bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. Anyone who loves 
his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So we see the unity that can be had under Jesus' rule when he is ultimate. But then we see where the division comes from. It's because Jesus is king, because he makes such absolute claims on every aspect of our lives, even what is as good and beautiful as our family, as our flesh and blood family, Jesus says, I am more important than that. And Jesus causes all kinds of division between those who follow them, follow him and those who do not because the priorities, the values are completely different. One of the, a really simple example that I think plays out maybe in our context is if kids get to college and they kind of have a spiritual awakening and they really want to uh, try to prioritize the way of Jesus in their life, which in a lot of ways doesn't look like upward mobility. You could say that Jesus' way of life is downward mobility since he you know, descended from heaven and became a finite human and, and all that thing. And wh- but what do parents want? More and better and comfort and no problems in their kid's life, typically. And that's not a bad desire, but you see where a kid, a child, might grow up and want to follow Jesus into risk, into danger, into less money at the very least, potentially. And that that causing strife, that's one of the things that I've experienced in my own life. And then you think of more extreme examples. Many people who are saved out of Islam, who come to be a Jesus follower instead of uh, practicing Islam, they get completely excommunicated. Like their families have a funeral for them because they've chosen to follow Jesus. Like they are dead to their families. And we, we see that Jesus brings unity where now you and I, we, we could have perfect unity under Jesus with someone who doesn't speak our language, who uh, might have grown up in Islam, more unity than we have with our own parents. This is the the crazy both and of Jesus, that he unites people who have no reason to be united, and he divides people that have every reason to be divided because he is king. The key is to let Jesus be the issue. That we unite and we divide over Jesus. He is the line in the sand. Which brings me to the next point. Division is a Jesus problem. When there's division in the church, it's a Jesus problem. Thank God the Bible is realistic. We're going to see how this is a Jesus problem because scripture is by no means sugarcoats what life in the church looks like. Thank God for that. We see division come fresh out of the gate as the church begins to gather and worship and do life together. And we, and we see in scripture there's a, a biblical way to address conflict and division. We also see Uh, four reasons, four kind of foundations or, I I guess, motivations that that spur division to happen. We're only going to look at two today. 
But both of these reasons that would create division in the church are Jesus problems. They all stem from Jesus not being king. They're things to look out for. This is one of the passages we're going to look at a couple times, so you can turn here. This is Titus, this is our, uh, what was read earlier, Titus 3. If you're in the Pew Bible, this is on page 1859. If you were ever curious about how I seek to be a pastor or where I look for counsel, uh, Titus, along with First and Second Timothy, they're called the pastoral epistles. Apostle Paul is writing instructions to a young pastor. And so I love these passages, or the, these chapters. They're so short. These, all these books are very short, but they are so layered and unbelievably practical. Page 1859, Titus 3. We see the first reason that division comes about in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. So the first reason we're seeing on where division comes from is foolish controversies. Discussions about genealogies, arguments, and quarrels. And Paul gives us an unbelievably diverse uh, list here that, that captures a lot of the common things that we would see con division coming from in church. First, foolish controversies. Anything that's just not essential. Controversy meaning this is beyond conflict and just like an ongoing rivalry, an ongoing controversy. Things about colors of things and what kinds of decorations or even what kinds of music. These are foolish controversies. Next we see uh, genial. Uh, Foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments. An example of this, this might be a little, a little edgy, but Calvinism and Arminianism, I think, would fall into just kind of an argument or a quarrel we should avoid. The doctrine is very important. Those terms are not important. So if we're like drawing lines in the sand over these terms that are very vague and mean different things to different people, and we could see that th this would be a cause for division. But if Jesus is the line in the sand and we're looking to see what does his word say, then typically even in leaning different ways on that issue of how we're saved or uh, however you want to uh, describe that argument, can, you can have unity there. Doctrine matters, but the terms do not. Genealogies, numbers, quarrels about the law, these little nuances. This makes me think of end times where we're like drawing lines in the sand based on what this prophetic book says <laughs> that we can't actually know for sure. And so do we study this? Do we see what scripture says? Absolutely. But we unite under Jesus, not our particular take on how Revelation says. The genealogies thing points to someone who would look to their lineage so he's like, look at where I came from. Look, I was born a Jewish person, so I am a little bit better. Or my parents were very, very spiritual, and they did this and this and this for this church. And so I have this and this right. All of these things, if we were to take doctrine and make it more about the doctrine than Jesus, if we were to take just kind of a foolish controversy about something like carpet color and make it ultimate, 
or if we're going to like suss over these little details in, in scripture, numbers, and in times, and genealogies. Ever been around someone who uh, claims to be a Christian and, and feels like they've like cracked the Bible numerology code? You know, they can like, well, this is in chapter two, and then if you divide two by one, you get two, and then, you know, I don't know, that was a terrible example. But people do crazy stuff with numbers and scripture. But at the, at the root of all these things is being right, where it's more important than being right than submitting to Jesus. They're coming from perhaps a place of emptiness or insignificance. We feel like we need to establish our worth or our goodness by being right about something instead of our place under Jesus as, as our king. One of uh, the dark times of my life was my time doing online dating before God rescued me. His anger towards me ceased, and I got to marry Camille. And there was this girl who lived in Texas, uh, God help her, and she was like an uber, uber, uber Christian. And so like early on, we were just like talking on the phone. I never actually met her. Uh, she was like grilling me about all these like really nuanced stance. Like she had like joined all her camps and all these like controversial points in the Christian life. And like, and I, and I she kind of lost me at the Jonah debate. And <laughs> I was currently uh, at that time I was working at a church plant in a largely homosexual neighborhood. And so we're just like looking for like talking about the fact that God's there and Jesus loves us. You know, like th- like that was our like main message. We're not talking about the like historicity of Jonah and the whale but you see that kind of christians can get really weird especially when you're in just kind of a christian bubble where you just need to draw lines you need to divide into camps based on what you believe about all these little nuances that in the, in the end are just foolish controversies so being right establishing ourselves by our rightness rather than jesus's righteousness is the first reason that division comes from. Uh, the second place division comes from is in Romans 16. Looking at verses 17 and 18. Paul just got done with his longest epistle, all this beautiful theology, all this glorious uh, commands out of that theology, and right at the end, he says... I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. So being right is one place where division stems from. Our selfish appetites, our own appetites, is another place where division comes from. You see, they're not serving Jesus. He's not king. It's their own desires. Putting their own desires ahead of Jesus, ahead of his people, ahead of the flourishing of his church. We see that all division is a Jesus problem. So what do we do with this? This is the third point. The Bible tells us how to deal with division. It shows us how to respond to it. And I want to start by saying that there is a lot of space for disagreement in the church. Division is different than healthy conflict. Division is different than having different opinions. 
as a simple example, marriage. It would, in fact, be unhealthy if there were never any disagreements in a marriage. Because that would mean someone's not being honest. Someone's not being themselves. You guys are two different people. There should be some element of rubbing off each, on each other. Honesty requires us to speak up, to confront, even if it's just a misunderstanding. But it doesn't, just like in marriage, it doesn't necessarily have to result in a break or a division. That is indeed one of the beautiful things of the marriage covenant, is that there can be conflict, but it's safe because you're committed to each other. So again, there's place for conflict, there's place for disagreement in the church, place for robust discussion, sharpening each other, as Proverbs says, is a kind of a violent act. Iron sharpens iron. It creates sparks. There's friction. And the Bible says that's good. That caveat aside, first we have to distinguish between major issue and minor issues. Essentials versus judgment calls, if you will. We see this very clearly in a conflict <clears throat> between Paul and Peter in Galatians 2. You don't have to turn here. This is a little bit of a story, if you will. <clears throat> but Peter is a guy who walked with Jesus. He spent three years very closely with Jesus. Kind of a big deal, if you will. He wrote the Bible. And look what Paul does to him. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Ooh. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. So basically, Peter was being a hypocrite. He, when certain people weren't watching, he didn't follow the Jewish law and hung out with Christians who didn't follow the Jewish law, which is fine. But then when people who had kind of twisted the gospel to saying, like, you need Jesus plus the Jewish law, he got all cold towards the Gentiles, towards people who didn't follow the law. Paul goes on. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Apparently Peter was going to those Gentile crew, the non-Jewish crew, and saying like, Oh, by the way, you've got to do all this stuff again. Paul says, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing, observing the law, but by faith in Jesus. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by observing the law, but by observing, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. What we have here is a gospel issue, a Jesus issue, a line in the sand over Jesus and the gospel issue of how are we made right? And we see Paul pull out all the guns. I opposed him to, a, to his face. I confronted him in front of everyone. And this is for someone that Jesus says blessed in person and called his rock. It is a gospel issue in the life of a leader. It's a big, bold confrontation. 
for me as a leader, for any of our other leaders, for anyone in the church, when there's a gospel issue, there's space for asking questions. Maybe don't go from zero to public confrontation in the face, because there's other passages of scripture that would ease you into it. But we see that there is a lot of space biblically for anyone to be confronted, especially in areas around Jesus and his gospel. Complete agreement with leadership is not the requirement for membership in any church, especially here. Complete agreement with the leadership, with the pastor or pastors, is not a requirement for belonging, participation, or membership in a church family, just like a biological family. What makes you a member of your biological family? Who your father is, who your parents are. Whether you disagree or not, you still belong there and can pursue unity. The next example of conflict we see in Scripture is in Acts 15. You don't have to turn there. It's just a little bit of a story. But you can if you want. Acts 15, starting in verse 36. Paul, again, a little bit of a brawler, mixing everything up. Paul says, sometime, or the account says, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went throughout Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. So presumably in a previous uh, missionary journey, John Mark bailed on Paul. He, we don't know the exact details of it, but he messed up and bailed. He didn't continue in the work. And Barnabas, we know as the son of encouragement, sounds like a little bit of a teddy bear. He's like, let's give him another chance. And Paul's like, no, he deserted us. I'm, we're not going to partner with him. And it says their disagreement was so sharp that they parted company. What did they part company to do? The same thing they were originally going to do. The work of the gospel. So in this, it, what is ultimately a judgment call. There isn't a verse that says, thou shalt not take John Mark, or thou shalt give John Mark a second try. This was a wisdom issue, a, a judgment call, as they are seeking to seeking to obey Jesus, seeking to, to serve the churches. And so they parted company, both doing gospel work, just not together. Now I want to say this should be rare. This isn't like the slightest judgment call we can all like bail and try to find somewhere where all our judgment calls line up with everybody else's judgment calls. You'll be looking a long time. But we notice that they talked about it, that there was space to sharply disagree. They didn't just ghost or just, Paul didn't just silently frown and then walk away he sharply disagreed with Barnabas but at the end of the day we serve a God who is much bigger much smarter much wiser and is calling people to do all kinds of things and we got to leave space for people to be led differently and leave on good terms part company on good terms which is to say again you don't have to agree with leadership to participate here 
And if you get to the point where you disagree with leadership to, to the point where you feel called somewhere else, there's space to part company on good terms with a blessing. We see that the brothers uh, commended Paul and Silas. So there's either a confrontation and understanding, wrestling with scripture, letting Jesus be the dividing line, or there's a parting of company in peace with a blessing. But beyond these processes, when people are present in the church body causing division from Jesus breakdowns, from selfish appetites or foolish controversies, the church, the Bible says, must move decisively. This is the keep your finger in uh, Titus 3, or put a piece of the bulletin in there, and then flip to 1 Corinthians 3. This is the second passage we're going to kind of zero in on. First Corinthians 3, <clears throat> 1774 this is the page number in the Pew Bible. Looking at verse 10 through 11. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Mm, just love how clear that is. Paul is talking about work in the church, church planting, and he's saying there's no other foundation than Jesus. That is what we base our life together on as a church. Then skip down to verse 16 and 17. There, there were divisions on a Jesus issue that we didn't in the church in Corinth. In verse 16 and 17, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. We talked about this last week with the church, the gathered people in a local place, as the, the Bible calls us the temple, which means God's spirit dwells with us here, particularly as a people where we gather, not just particularly on this corner, but as a people, he, get, he dwells with us. So anyone that is working against the church, working against God's people, is against God himself. If the church, the people gathered, is where the Spirit of God dwells, God's Spirit lives in us. If someone is destroying God's temple, working against God's temple, trying to hinder and break down, they're working against God. It says God will destroy him because God's temple is sacred. This is why being openly divisive, openly gossiping or against the church or church leaders is literally attacking God Almighty. It's that serious. Again, there's space to disagree and have good discussion over scripture. There's space to part company in peace. But if someone is staying and actively trying to stop the church, to hurt the church, it's attack against God. 
So flip back to Titus 3, page 1859. We looked at this passage to give us one of the examples or reasons for division, which is stirring up controversy on silly things. This passage, again, is written in a book of the Bible that is instructions to a young pastor. So consider me as a young pastor, put yourself in my shoes as a young pastor trying to lead a church and reading scripture and consider how we might respond, starting in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies, arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time, and after that, have nothing to do with him. We'll stop there. Why? So we have some kind of clear instructions. There's, it's, it's, there's some grace wired into there, which they, they get one warning and then another warning. And then there's just clear instructions, have nothing to do with him. And then Paul goes on to explain to young Titus, the pastor, why? In verse 11, you may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Self Claiming to love Jesus, but actively trying to stir up division, actively trying to keep people from coming or spreading untrue things about the church is evidence that there's something deeply wrong in the heart of a person. Almost done. You guys have done great. This stuff is not fun. But I hope we can see through all this gloom, through these heavy words, that there is beauty on the other side. That we have one true shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, that we might be one in the grace of the gospel, the new life of his resurrection. And this is open to anyone. The church is completely open. Just the, the narrow doors that we have to let Jesus be king and trust in him alone. Anyone can come into Jesus' flock who's willing to love him above everything else and depend on him for all our, all our needs. Still in Titus 3, let's read the gospel part again. Because this is not a, a process by which Paul tells Titus to just rag on sinful people. But look what Paul does before he gets to the division, before he gets to a warped, sinful person who's self-condemned. Look in verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is what's behind any dealing with controversy or division or conflict in the church. There's a tenderness. Because all of us, 
were at one time foolish and deceived and disobedient. At no point does the church act towards uh, someone claiming the name of Jesus, but refusing to live according to the way he calls, calls us with anything but love and humility because we have all been there and are currently still in process. This is what we're going for when we obey scripture and address divisive people, that we would call them to the truth in love and kindness to look upon Jesus and not anything else, not being right, not their own appetites, but to look on Jesus. This is why we engage. It's a scary and hard and it's so easy, guys. It's so easy to say, well, I don't judge anyone. I let God do that. I just want to love people. And there's some truth in that. But there's also a side where the Bible gives the church clear commands to, to seek peace and pursue it. To fight for unity under King Jesus. If someone is barreling towards a cliff in their car, it is a good thing to flag them down and tell them to stop. No parent would let their kid run towards the street and be like, I don't put rules. I don't want to confront them. I just want to be a loving parent and let their kid run into the street. But this is how the church glorifies God and remains unified generation after generation. As we let Jesus be king, not our preferences, not the way we like to do it. We let Jesus be king and we obey his command at the Last Supper where he says, this is my command, that you love one another. This is how the world will know that you follow me, by how you love one another. One of the most beautiful stories of this is uh, there's a pastor in Texas named Matt Chandler and he became a pastor at an uh, older church, and younger people started coming. And they made some changes, and there was a guy named Del Steele. And I've never met Del, never been to this church, but the legacy of Del Steele has been extended nationwide through Matt Chandler's ministry because he tells the story early on, coming in to his office and saying, I don't like you or anything that's happening here. I don't like the music, it's too loud, all these kids running around are annoying, but Jesus is being preached. How can I help? And so Matt Chandler, he got young guys around Dell, got young guys in Dell's house helping him with stuff because he was starting to get old, and then they got young guys around Dell who could, who could offer stability to all these crazy young guys. And listen, y'all, when Dell passed away, it was like a church-wide event. They had, they had the, the funeral on Sunday, where the sermon was kind of in, in, uh, an homage to Dell, because he had so embedded himself in this young, dumb church that, he didn't, that, he did, that wasn't doing anything according to his preferences. And his legacy is a legacy of someone who loves Jesus no matter what, even if he doesn't like anything and everyone. And, when, and I've experienced this here in the person of Jeff Fulmer. Sorry to put you on the spot. But right, Jeff and I are different generations and we like a lot of the different a lot of different things. 
But what I love about working with Jeff is that we complement each other, that he slows me down and offers gravitas to, to my youth, even as he goes with things that he doesn't like, and he tells me when he doesn't like them. So I hope this is uh, somewhat of a positive note to cast vision for what I hope our church is like as generations work together. And to all of you young people, someday we'll be old, Lord willing. And let's like prepare now to just jump ship on all of our preferences. Whatever the whippersnappers are doing, when we are old, let's be prepared to get behind them and help the gospel go forward. Because ultimately, that's, that's our cry. Is that the guy? <laughs> hey, thanks, Sue. Ultimately, that's what we're here for, is for Jesus to get glory and calling people into flu human flourishing as, as they submit to him. That's, that's what we're here for. If we're here for anything else, shut it down and go fishing. But the, the beauty of knowing Jesus, the goodness of following him with other people who are unified is, is worth having sermons like this and working through these issues. Let me pray for us. Pray that Jesus would make this a reality. Father God, I thank you for being with us as we